0: Welcome to the AV Podcast Movies Edition presented by Phil Hinton.
1: Hello and welcome to this week's AV Podcast Movies Edition. Coming up, we've got the latest DVD and HD news, and we review on Blu-ray, Open Season, and Brothers Grimm, and on HD DVD, we take a look at The Departed. And in this week's roundtable, we're discussing our favourite movie soundtracks.
0: From AV Play, it's this week's DVD and HD news and reviews. So as always this moment
1: in time in the podcast we cover the DVD and HD news and I think for a change I'll start things off this week with the announcement that Fox are going to release the Region 2 DVD version of Hogfather on the 9th of April 2007. For those who don't know, this was the successful Sky 1 series, which ran in December, and it'll come to DVD both on a standard two-disc edition at 19.99, as well as a limited collector's edition, which includes a special note to Terry Pratchett fans. Both are packaged with special features, which include exclusive deleted scenes, a fascinating introductory guide to the disc world, and a making-of featurette. So, did anybody catch this when it was on the TV? I only saw the first half.
2: Yeah, I didn't see it at all.
1: So that'll be a no then, so... <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> uh, so no. But we'll probably review... It. We'll send it to one of the people who only watched half of it, so they like, can we'll watch the other half when we get the review copy.
1: <laughs> okay, so that one's coming out on the 9th of April. That's a Hogfather on Region 2. So who's up next? Let's have
4: a look. It's Chris. Hey, now here we go. This is the uh, my favourite film of last year, Uh, my favorite Bond movie perhaps of all time. It is Casino Royale, which finally comes to Blu-ray Disc on the 19th of March, and it's priced at a whopping 24.99 pounds and worth every penny, I have to say. 21st James Bond Adventure, of course, Daniel Craig, his debut as 007, is absolutely a great, great, great movie. Uh, It's coded for all regions, A, B, and C. Features include a 1080p, 2.40 to 1 widescreen image, And it's got a, well, I'm presuming a fabulous PCM 5.1 uncompressed soundtrack. I haven't heard a bad one yet, to be honest. We have a few featurettes as well. Becoming Bond, lasting about 30 minutes. James Bond for real, another 30-minute little featurette. Bond Girls Are Forever, 50 minutes plus. Well, that sounds good. That's definitely a favourite there. And we have a Chris Cornell music video for the track You Know My Name, which no one else apart from me seems to like, but I think it's brilliant. And uh, well, guys, I can't wait for this movie at all. As I'm sure you know, how about you, Chris?
1: How many times have you actually seen this movie?
4: Um, if I told you I'm not sure, would you believe me? I, ha- yeah. I don't know. I've yeah. I've seen it. I've have seen it at the at the pictures about five times.
1: I've got to say, a quick look at those extras, I know like, just reading the words on the screen doesn't really say what the
4: extras are. It doesn't say a lot, does it? And it, uh, it
1: looks it, a, little bit, a little bit bare, doesn't it? I mean, that's It what,
4: looks very threadbare. I mean, you would be expecting on a standard release, you'd have a double disco, wouldn't you, which would have deleted scenes, it would have comedy tracks, it would have all sorts of stuff. But this kind of leaves you wanting and makes you think that, hang on a minute, there's going to be another version, isn't there, somewhere down the line. And, of course, what I'm hoping is that the standard release will not have more on it <laughs> as opposed to the Blu-ray. I don't know what's on that, what's going to be on that one, so...
1: Well, that's it. I mean, Blu-ray will have its advantages, but I also notice that a lot of the extras on Blu-ray tend to be missing. You know, where yeah. other discs you get ported over from the DVD or whatever, Blu-ray doesn't seem to do that at the moment, which well, is a this, shame.
4: This is it, and, of course, there'll be a standard release at the same time, but what's going to be on that one, I, I'm not sure myself at this moment in time. And, no, in my luck, I'll end up getting them all... <laughs>
1: I have no doubt whatsoever that you will have every version of that disc Chris okay so we'll move on because it's getting a bit like Deja Vu at this moment in time and we'll move on to Kaz
5: the latest Denzel Washington thriller uh, directed by Tony Scott is Deja Vu Um, I've always been a fan of uh, Denzel Washington and pretty much everything he's in is guaranteed to be watchable. It's coming out on the 24th of April, released by Buena Vista. The disc is getting a 2.35 to 1 anamorphic widescreen transfer, a DD 5.1 track, as well as some featurettes and some deleted scenes. It's retailing at $29.99 in dollars, because of course this is the Region 1 release, um, but I'll be out there, well up for checking this out
1: so Tony Scott another movie from him a bit of hit and miss Tony Scott isn't he any of you guys managed to catch Deja Vu
4: no I, I didn't see it but I, I have to say I wouldn't mind picking it up myself I think it does look pretty good so I think, yeah, that's one for me. I loved uh, Man on Fire. Tony
5: Scott, Denzel Washington, Man on Fire, their last collaboration. Absolutely yeah, amazing I movie. Yeah, so I'll definitely have to see this. I mean, I know it probably won't be quite as good, but it's going to be a must-see. Yep,
1: yeah, Deja Vu, We're all, I think we're all looking forward to that one, so we'll all be picking that one up. Uh, moving back to Blu-ray, this time UK releases, and Simon's got some news for us.
2: Yes, thanks, Phil. This is um, five or six releases from uh, Sony Pictures Home Entertainment, all being released on the 19th of March this year, all priced at £17.99, all Blu-ray discs. Um, You've got 50 first dates, Kung Fu Hustle, which um, I quite like, Layer Cake, XXX, which I don't like, and Hellboy. All are pretty good films, all in their original formats. The Hellboy, in fact, is the director's cut, the 132-minute director's cut. Um, Not very many extras of any of these, I'm afraid, though. But there's also a little bit of breaking news as of talking. The very next day, the 20th of March, in the USA this time, we've got Rocky Balboa coming to Blu-ray Disc as well. Don't know very many specs about that at the moment, um, but I just thought you might like to know that.
1: So, Sony, once again, uh, releasing... Blu-ray in the UK. It seems to be trickling out very, very slowly for the format in the UK, which is not the case in the states. States seem to be getting lots of releases every week at the moment. So, from those discs, any of them that are of any interest, any of you guys?
4: Oh, definitely. Yeah, Hellboy director's cut. Um, I loved even the the theatrical cut of Hellboy director's cut. Adds a a little bit extra to it, character-wise, and a few nice extra scenes. And yeah, on its standard release, it had a fabulous image great sound it's going to be 1080p and English PCM 5.1 uncompressed yeah definitely a can't wait for that and Layer Cake Daniel Craig Pre-Bond that's a great great movie as well full of twists and turns and yeah though certainly I'll add that little line up there I'll be I'm, I'm having those without a doubt and Rocky Balboa that's a good film too yeah might have that one too
1: so we'll stay with Blu-ray as we wrap up this week's news
3: and it's Seth Gecko. Well, oh, Buena Vista are actually going to be releasing four titles in the upcoming weeks. On the 20th of March, we're going to see Johnny Depp's Finding Neverland and uh, an apparent family favourite in Chicken Little, although I'm not particularly sure that uh, it's a favourite of mine. You're going to have PCM and 5.1 and 1080p video presentations on those. And then on the 3rd of April, we're going to get two turkeys after the chicken, King Arthur Director's Cut, and G.I. Jane, but with Demi Moore, Uh, 1080p, PCM 5.1, and Absolute Garbage. All of those titles will have a retail price of
4: $30. As much as you panned those movies there, there's actually three there I'm picking up. Chicken Little Lake, more of them of course, but um, I loved Finding Neverland, and King Arthur Director's Cut adds a lot of gore to it. It's not the best movie ever made, but I don't know. There's something about it which I quite like. Kieran Knightly, um, dude. Yeah, it could be that actually. And uh, well, and well, I think you just pretty nailed. While like GI Jane, not because Kieran Knightly isn't it, but Demi Moore isn't it doing one arm press ups as well, and the incline sit ups. I have to say, I I love that movie. <laughs> <laughs> it is a, it is a turkey, but there's room in the world for turkeys too, and I quite like I quite like it. I'm definitely going to get that one.
1: So there you go from the turkey's mouth, uh, three discs that he'll be picking up. And that rounds up our DVD news and HD news for this week.
0: The latest high-def news and reviews every week. Every week. Every week. You're listening to the AV Podcast. The AV Podcast Interview of the Week with phil hinton this week we caught
1: up with danny dyer to discuss his new film called straight heads which is released in uk cinemas on april the 20th the film is obviously aimed at an adult audience and as we are a family friendly podcast we should warn you about the following content coming up we've also bleeped out danny's language so i started by welcoming danny back to the av podcast Welcome to the podcast again, Danny. Last time we, uh, we spoke, we were talking about Severance, and it's been out oh, on yeah. DVD for a while now. So are you happy with the way that's going on the home format?
6: Yeah, I'm f***ing over the moon, to be honest with you. I was quite uh, quite disappointed in the cinema release, you know? Well, the fact that we got absolutely tranced by snakes on a plane and Yumi and Dupree, you know, I was really d- depressed about that. But, you know, it came out on DVD and it's absolutely smashed it. So it's a relief for everybody. I think we have sold 125,000 copies or something, which is saying, you know, which which I think the film deserves. You know, I'm not just being biased because I'm in it, but I think it's a great film and it's British. And uh, you know, I think the British should get behind the movies.
1: Excellent result there for you on DVD. And today we're talking about your new film, which is going to hit cinemas on the 20th of April, called Straight Heads. And your co-star in that movie is Julian Anderson. So can you tell us a little bit about the film?
6: I basically play somebody that installs security cameras, and um, I'm basically just installing these security cameras at Gillian Anderson's house, when Gillian Anderson plays this very rich businesswoman, very sexy, as you'd expect from her, and she just takes a shine to me, and she decides to take me to a party that she's going to, and then we go to this party, and it's amazing, and we get on really well, and we have this amazing sex in the woods, and it's all f***ing great, and then on the way back from this party, we get rammed off the road by these three guys, who, who rape her, and And beat me, and they beat me so bad, I lose an eye, so therefore the film takes this it goes into another gear and it and it twists the whole love story on its head, and we basically plot to get our revenge back and it 's basically a bit, bit like straw dogs you know she she's she 's the driving full star about the revenge you know i 'm sort of this innocent guy who's had this horrific thing happen to him. I just want to get on with my life, but she 's adamant that we need to get them back and she 's quite good with a gun because she learned how to use a gun when she was young younger. And so we decide to find out where they live and we get them back one by one horrifically. And it's very dark, it's quite disturbing, but I love to be part of things like that, you know?
1: One of the podcast team managed to see the film this week and he thought it had quite a few homages back to movies such as Straw Dogs and yeah. I Spit on Your Grave and so on. So do you agree that there's a similarity there between those movies?
6: Yeah, in the fact that it's, it's about revenge and it's, you know, it's almost about... Taking the law in your own hands and stuff, but uh it's got its own way about it. I think this film, you know, it's it's a real 2 ander It's just about me and her, um and that's the, I think that's the interesting thing about our relationship. That's just you know had had you know we've had this terrible thing happen to us, and it, and it's uh, and it's sort of just you know really it's hard to come through something like that. You can't just think that okay, once we get our revenge, we're going to be sweet. We're going to go off and have kids and live f- happily ever after. There's loads of stuff that comes along with that, you know, like the fact that I can't fuck her anymore, you know, I can't get it up anymore, I don't feel sexy, she doesn't feel sexy because of the rape, you know, our our only motivation is getting revenge on these people, that's, what, that's why we're alive, that's why we're living and obviously, you know, she gets her closure and I don't, you know, I, I become this psychopath, you know, I, I can't snap out of that, that mode and uh, that's what's interesting about it for me.
1: The movie has um, sexual themes right the way through it, some quick yes. graphic, and from the rape yes. to Adam and Alice, and possibly um, the most awkward scene is for you going solo, so to speak. So do you find that kind of thing particularly awkward to film, or is it just part of the job for you?
6: It's always going to be a little bit awkward, you know what I mean? But, uh, you know, I did it a long time ago in human traffic, I had to do a scene, you know. I think I'm the only one, I'm probably the only actor on this earth that's done two scenes in a film, you know. It was very strange. This one was a bit harder because it's like a cry I'm <laughs> thinking and crying at the same time because, you know, I just can't get it up anymore. So, I mean, that scene wasn't actually in the script, you know. It was after we shot it. We had to come back five months later, and he wanted to add that scene just to show what sort of torment I'm going through. But, uh, you know, you've got to get your head around that quickly if you're going to be an actor. You know, you can't start getting embarrassed at <laughs> all. You know, you've got to go into that 150%. You know, you start getting tricky around it. You're just going to make problems for yourself. So... It's always weird, you know what I mean? Because I can only wank the way I fucking at the end of the day. So, although I'm not into koi, that's not really my game. Yeah. But um, you know, it it, it it needs to be in the film. It absolutely needs to see you know what's going on in my brain, you know, and the fact that it's the sexual thing that's bugging me more than the fact that I've only got one eye. You know, the fact that I can't get it up anymore is quite a major thing for a you know for a 20 you know for a guy in his 20s to accept the fact that he's going to have one eye for the rest of his life and maybe that he's never going to be able to fuck again. That's quite a big thing.
1: Yeah. Obviously, the, the act, actual act of revenge in the movie makes for some quite uncomfortable viewing. I mean, I, I won't spoil it for people, but okay. um, the, there is one scene where a rifle is used and one of the critics that were at the screening had to turn away and winced at that moment. What's your thoughts on that scene and, and the violence that's used in general?
6: Yeah, it's quite horrific, that. I mean, I read the scripts, and I, you know, and I read that and thought, f***ing hell, you know, Jesus Christ. You know, I, I just couldn't picture Gillian Anderson doing that. But, uh, you know, it's... It, it's You know, there's was, was the one scene in the film where we all sat down and we had to get it right, you know. We had to really f***ing think about it, you know. It's the last scene, and it's the last thing that you're left with. So, you know, that's a very important thing, that, I think, for... for for a film that you know the last thing that you're left with you know it's not going to make you feel very good but um it, it it needs to be there it's this you know the things that happened to us before that are horrendous and so she just feels that that's her only way of getting a bit of closure by doing that to him um obviously it doesn't work like that but uh it was a real worry for us that scene from the beginning you know we had to rehearse that a lot you know just to get that right and try to get the tone right of it but either way, it's, it's horrific, you know. But, uh, you know, that's what, film, that's what films are about, you know. You go to be entertained, you go to be shocked, you go to, for many different reasons, but what you don't want to do is go in and have no feeling whatsoever. That's my fear of making movies that people couldn't give a fuck about, that forget about as soon as they leave the fucking cinema. You know, I don't want to be part of that. I'd rather be part of something that makes people feel ill or sick or makes them laugh or, you know, raises debate, you know. that's That's what I'm about.
1: In the movie, your character goes through some real changes, which we've already touched on. It goes from your usual sort of Danny Dyer persona and then transforms as things progress. Is that the kind of challenge that you enjoy as an actor?
6: Yeah, of course it is, yeah. You know you, you know, you want to go on a real journey in a movie. You know you want to be in that last fucking frame, something that you... the total opposite from what you was in the first frame. You know, and to pull that off over a six-week period you know, and you film, you know, what the way you shoot movies is it's all it's all back to front, you know, it's never in order. And it's good for the brain, you know, it keeps you on your toes, you know, to to think of, you know, doing a scene right at the you know, right at the beginning of the shoot where you're actually a psycho, you know, where it's at the end of the shoot. And it's getting that in your you know, it's good training, man. You've got to earn your stripes, you know, and if you wanna be a lead actor, which is what I wanna be, you know, that you've got to get your head around that sort of stuff, you know, you don't shoot it from beginning to end. You don't go on a slow journey. You've got to have that journey already in your head, embedded, so you know at any day, at any time, you can fucking pull out that part of the character wherever he is at that time. So that that's always a challenge for me. So, this for me was probably the, the hardest part of that to play, you know?
1: Personally, are you happy with your role in Straight Edge, and do you feel that the audience is going to see something of Danny Dyer that maybe they haven't seen yet?
6: I'm very happy with the performance. I couldn't have done any more. It was a joy to work with Gillian. You know, she made me raise my game. I hope so. You know, I hope that people are going to look at me and think, oh, you know, actually he's got something more about him. I don't know, you know, it's just, you can't really sit there and worry about things like that, you know, otherwise you drive yourself f***ing mad. So, I know people like, like to see me do a certain thing, but at the same time, you know, I'd like to express myself. I've not done anything yet in, in, in the acting game, you know, I still haven't proved myself whatsoever, you know, and I'm I, and I'm still quite young, so, you know, I've got lots of s*** out there I want to try, you know, and... You know, I'm hoping this is going to be a little stepping stone.
1: Now, I guess any red-blooded male's ambitions to share a little bit of time with Agent Scully. What's yeah. it like, What was it like working with Gillian Anderson?
6: She was lovely. She was great. You know, she was. Uh, she's such a fucking great actress. You know, she really fucking knows her game. So you can do is learn from people like that. You know, and uh, you can buzz off of it. And you know, she didn't have no drama queen moments. There was none of that Hollywood bollocks that come into play. She just knuckled down. And she got on with a fucking job, and that's what impressed me about her more than anything else, you know. So, I know there's going to be a lot of little X-File geeks out there that are going to be probably hate my guts, you know. But, uh, you know, I think that they're going to be very surprised, you know. This is a different side to Gillian, people have never seen before. Um, and I, I think she's fucking amazing.
1: Finally, Danny, why should people spend their, their hard end to go and see straight heads?
6: I think they should. I think they should go in there because um, it, it, it's it's a film that um, it's going to keep you on your toes. There's no two ways about that. You don't know where you're going with it. Um, if you're quite into dark, shit, yeah, you know, then this is definitely the film for you. If you want a nice easy, you me and fucking do pre-ride and go and watch one of them old bollock films. If you want something that really says something and saying it's going to upset you or make you feel unsettled, shake you up a bit, and then throw you out of the cinema. Then go and see Straightheads, man, because I promise you it will not let you down.
1: Straightheads hits UK cinemas on the 20th of April. Go and see it. And Danny, thank you very much for joining us again on the AV Podcast.
6: Thank you very much, Sunshine.
0: See you later. For real AV talk, this is the AV Podcast. This week's DVD Reviews.
1: And as always, the man who can talk for England is going to start us off again with our DVD reviews this week. And we're looking at Blu-ray discs, aren't we, Chris?
4: We are indeed, yes. So, what are we looking at this week? Well, I've managed to look at um, The Brothers Grimm this week on Blu-ray disc. A, a film which was largely ignored or um, despised by a lot of people. Um, and yet, it's actually quite a quite a great, great movie. It's got a few bad elements to it. There's some dodgy accents here, that- here and there and some equally dodgy cgi effects but as a as a, a mythical fabulist sort of tale about the the real life brothers Grimm, who of course in gilliam's version are obviously a lot of poetic license has been have been you know enforced upon this uh, they don't just go and collect stories now they are con men traveling across europe creating fake hauntings and possessions and poltergeist activity with little behind-the-scenes chaps working away there, and they're making a living scamming their way across Europe. Great, but it comes to the attention of um, Jonathan Pryce's uh, General Della Tomb, who's a bit of a strange sort of character, who knows of a village where children are going missing, and this may sound a bit familiar to people who've watched Sleepy Hollow and Le Pacte de Loup, um, Brother of the Wolf, because it does tread very similar sort of territory. Anyway, to stave off torture for their, their their past crimes, the Brothers Grimm head off to this, you know, blighted, isolated little village where children are indeed going missing in very, you know, similar sort of circumstances to a lot of the fairy tales which the real Brothers Grimm put down in writing and, you know, have been saved for fairy tale posterity. And, yeah, it's, I think it's a great, great movie. There's a few dodgy um, elements thematically to it. The ending goes on for far too long. With a lot of cliffhanger after cliffhanger and silliness ensuing. There's a comedy element to it, which Gilliam always seems to like to adopt, and I think it works quite well for the for the most part in this. Heath Ledger and uh, Matt Damon, who play the brothers Grimm, they are both shrieking, sort of not the most heroic heroes you're ever going to come across. They'd rather run away than actually fight today. But the two of them do a, a fairly good job. i say there's a few dodgy accents there. They encounter werewolves, they encounter um, witches living in enchanted towers in an equally haunted forest. The trees come alive. There's a lot of great, great stuff in here. It's actually quite intense and quite frightening in places. So many effects, as I mentioned before, the werewolf in particular, are pretty much lousy. But a lot of the effects are really, really good. And one effect you've got to, I've got to bring to your attention is the um, the sets that they used. Like Ridley Scott did in, in Legend, like Tim Bear and with Steepy Hollow, you have enclosed sets. But the forest looks absolutely entrancing. It is purely hypnotic. There's a depth of feel to this. This isn't the picture quality of the disc itself. I'll come up to that in a minute. But the actual movie itself has some of the best. Um, studio-bound sets that I've seen for this kind of material—it uh, is absolutely—it's um, it's eye-popping stuff to be honest, and it's—it's it's great fun, great fun to watch. Apart from dodgy c- CGI, there is another element which sadly derails the film for me quite a bit, and that is the acting of Jonathan Price as General Delatour, and sadly Peter Stormare as his lieutenant Cavaldi, who is fond of torturing people. Now. I've mentioned before about Peter Stormare ruining other films, particularly Constantine where he played the devil and he camped it up something rotten. And here again, these two guys do exactly the same thing, they overact, it's ripe dialogue, but they really, really play it like pantomime villains. Now, okay, this is a kind of film where this sort of thing could be got gotten away with, but sadly not by these two guys, and each time they're on screen, which is a lot sadly, um, the film loses a lot of ground, but overall, I thoroughly, thoroughly, you know, enjoyed it. It's a great, exciting tale, and it looks sumptuous. I love, you know, Terry Gilliam's sort of gothic sensibility with it. Great stuff. Now, the Blu-ray disc uh, is absolutely gobsmacking in quality. The picture is scintillating. I have not seen detail like this on anything else. I watched this on a 52 inch LCD screen and this was absolutely I could not believe what I was looking at it. Was, the three dimensionality to it is unparalleled. The detail on every single image is just superlative. Again I mentioned the, the, the forest sets that they created. It's all it's autumnal. You have leaves across the ground in a complete thick carpet but you can pick out every single one. The colours leap off the screen the depth of field is, is amazing. Black levels are superb. It is truly, truly a, a glittering display of, of what certainly blue ray can do. I did notice occasionally there was a bit of sort of haziness on deep, deep reds. There are scenes set in the torture chamber and scenes set in the tavern where the whole um, room will be lit up by lots of roaring open fires. Now, now I only nitpicking here to be honest, um, but. You know, there was a certain amount of hazing and slight, slight grain was enhanced in those very thick coloured sequences. But apart from that, you know, it was absolutely incredible to look at. But the really, really good thing about this was the PCM Uncompressed 5.1 soundtrack to it. It's got a Dolby Digital 5.1 track as well, which is all all very, very good, you know, you won't be disappointed with it. But if you can flick over to the PCM, wow. This is incredible stuff, again, I mentioned House of Flying Daggers uh, on the last podcast and I've reviewed it as well, and uh, the sound for that was incredible. This seems to go even further in immersing you totally into a movie. A full speaker workout, absolute clarity, pin sharp clarity. It just blew me away, it's a joy to put it on, sit back and just crank up the sound. But it's not just like the sheer volume and the bombast of it, it's got a lot of that too exceptionally deep bass levels to it which really do rumble away but every speaker gets a lot of work to do this directional sound zipping over your head bouncing around behind your head and that the acoustics are absolutely tremendous stuff trees which comes life and uproot all you're gonna do is you want to test the, you know the capability of PCM against Dolby Didge which is shouldn't have to do it should speak for itself really but if you wanted to the scene very early on with the Little Red Riding Hood Going through the woods, she's pursued by a wolf. In your front right speaker, the a tree will uproot itself. The sound from that is absolutely incredible. You flicked the the, the Derby ditch, It's yeah, you can hear it, but it's nowhere near as a as, as you know vibrant and alive and you know making you jump sort of thing. So it's absolute top top um, disc for AV quality. Extras-wise, you you actually got a couple. You got a Terry Gilliam comedy track, which is sadly a bit dry because, as passionate as he is about his, his subject matter, it's just he needs someone else to bounce ideas off and anecdotes. He also seems to know every single extra and everybody they're related to. You know, throughout the entire production, he must have employed everybody in Prague where the film was made, and he, you know he likes to talk about them. It's a good track, but you know it could have been improved with someone else getting involved as well. You have a quite a stack of deleted scenes, one of which is absolutely superb, which details a, a battle with a, a monstrous tree, which is attacking the main characters. It's a huge sequence. It's not quite finished in the, in the deleted scene, but it's well worth watching. Other scenes are, are largely extensions of, of scenes you've already seen, and they add a bit of character stuff, basically. Uh, and Gilliam also does a, an optional comedy track over those. You have a very brief uh, documentary about the the visual magic of, of the film, and it, it, at least they're honest enough to say that you know a lot of things didn't work out too well. Uh, the wolf again, but they do point out a lot of things where you know the effects, the effects that you didn't even notice, but were, were actually you know CGI, and and the the blending of the, the sumptuous sets with the matte painted backgrounds, that is really good as well. I mean. I can't fault the film there at all. So basically, overall, I, I recommend it. It's a great Blu-ray disc. It's a showcase for AV for the AV quality. And it's a a damn fine film as well. And from the Brothers Grimm on Blu-ray, we head over to
1: Kaz Harlow, who's been looking at The Departed on
5: HD-DVD. Well, this is the latest movie from Scorsese. I've always been a fan of Martin Scorsese, ever since his days of uh, Taxi Driver and Mean Streets. He's been the director who's most channelled Robert De Niro's energy and I reckon De is easily my favourite actor. So I've, I've followed Scorsese's work over the decades and um, I was keen to see his latest movie. I loved The Aviator, I thought it showed a new side to DiCaprio and I was keen to see this, which was his latest movie. And it's a movie about the Boston crime underworld. Uh, not Boston, predominantly Irish, so it's the Irish mob in Boston. It focuses on Two police officers. One who's an undercover cop who has to go into the into the mob and get in deep with the leader, and the other who has been sent by the the mob boss to go undercover within the police unit, and effectively prevent them from ever catching him. Now, the De as a lot of people probably know, is basically a d- direct copy of Infernal Affairs, which is like a 2002-2003 movie, only a few years old, and it's, um, it's a, a line for line, practically, translation of that movie, and it's pretty much the only fault with this new uh, interpretation. Now Scorsese's not unfamiliar with um, remakes, he remade Cape Fear, and remaking a movie starring Gregory Peck and Robert Mitchum isn't always a good idea but he, he did a decent enough job with that this there's not enough time has elapsed the movie is um, it has everything you want in a movie a great soundtrack, uh, great cinematography great scenes, classic lines brilliant powerhouse performances by Jack Nicholson back on form uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, uh, Mark Wahlberg some Tremendous performances in there, it's all-star ensemble cast. It's got a nice, epic feel to it. And it tells lots of stories with interlinking story arcs. Uh, it's got an ending I wasn't wholly satisfied with, um, but overall, it's a it's a good, solid quality movie. Perhaps not Scorsese's best, but like him on a bad day, is better than most other people on really their best days. So it's a good movie. It's just a copy, and I. I cannot get over the fact that I've seen it all before, just a few years ago, by quality actors like Tony Leung and Andy Lau, uh, and doing it better. There was no need for this film to ever exist. And it comes to the HD DVD release. It's an HD DVD and a DVD combo. In terms of HD, we're looking at amazing picture, amazing sound. The, The film gets one of the best transfers I've come across so far in HD, uh, it's just got no problems with it. There's no softness, no grain, even in the really dark scenes. Uh, the facial details are perfect, the, the landscapes are brilliant. It's it's not a, a really sunny setting, but it's portrayed in a bright, fresh, natural look. Uh, it looks tremendous. One of the best uh, video presentations I've come across so far on HD. Sound wise it gets much the same. I mean it's a it's a true HD mix, a Dolby True HD mix. One of the few true HD mixes that I've come across sounds amazing. Scorsese's stuff is ideal for this kind of mix because you're talking about like a powerful, emotive score and you're talking about a bunch of superbly placed um, song tracks as well, music tracks by all his favourite artists. I think he's used Rolling Stone's Gimme Shelter a few too many times now but you'll let him off because he picks great music. The effects are well presented it's typical Scorsese, you know, random violence, all of a sudden, really in your face, loud bang. Um, It's good. It's it's good stuff. In terms of the extras, we don't get anything that's HD exclusive, but we get a couple of nice extras, uh, a few deleted scenes, I think there are about nine deleted scenes, all with an introduction by Scorsese, all worth a watch. Nothing that desperately needed to be in there, worth a watch. Um, A couple of featurettes, one that focuses on the character um, that Jack Nicholson plays and the real uh, Irish mob boss who he's based on. And That's quite an interesting featurette with loads of real gangsters in it talking about um, real-life incidents. The other one is a featurette on Scorsese and how growing up in Little Italy um, gave him this passion for... Mafia and the Underworld and, and goes through, charts through his movies that have had gangster influences, you know, you're talking Mean Streets, you're talking Goodfellas um, and Casino and now The Departists and that's quite a general featurette which is, you know, worth it for, for fans of Scorsese to go back and go, hey there, Ma- Mean Streets seems to be a bit of a biography on Scorsese, I see what's going on here. Overall, I gave it a 7, you're looking at a 6 for the movie. Um, nines for the picture and sound and a seven for the extras. I should point out if they hadn't have done Infernal Affairs, if this was a purely original script as indeed the screenwriter of The Departed suggests it is if this was a purely original script this movie would have probably got like an eight or maybe even a nine. it's It's a really good movie. It's just a copy.
1: Glad to get that sorted out. So, we'll move on to our final review for this evening, and it's over to Seth Gecko, who's been looking at what?
3: Well, I've been looking at Open Season on Blu-ray, a movie that stars Martin Lawrence and Ashton Kutcher. A recipe for disaster, if ever there were one. It's basically an animated movie, with Martin Lawrence voicing the character of Boog, a 900-pound grizzly bear, Now, Boog is a somewhat domesticated bear who's looked after by Beth, voiced by Deborah Messing of Will and Grace. He's a domesticated bear, obviously, living with Beth in her house. Um, They perform shows for the um, village where they live. However, due to Elliot's arrival, it all goes somewhat pear-shaped, and they end up dumping Elliot and Boog in the woods to fend for themselves, three days before open season obviously he had to get the uh, title in there somehow so it's a buddy movie where these two who can't stand each other have to effectively thrive in the wilderness and Boog decides he doesn't like it there he wants to go back to his comfort in his garage in his bed with his teddy bear um, and that's the general gist of the movie now if you're a kid you probably think it's great if you've got more than five active brain cells you're going to see through this from the actual pap that it really is it is atrociously bad however it is absolutely gorgeous to look at on blu-ray forget movies like monster house where it has a intentional grain by the director, this is absolutely crystal clear and pristine. You can see every single hair, every single blade of grass, the detail levels are fantastic and quite rightly so. It's a CGI movie, it should be. Sound wise, It is as usual on Blu-ray in uncompressed PCM, and I'll be absolutely honest, I didn't think it was an amazingly brilliant soundtrack. It's good, it's reasonably involving, um, but it isn't anything as exciting, say, as A House of uh, Flying Daggers. it's not even as good as, say, the HD DVD version of Poseidon, which are very aggressive tracks um, and throw sounds around you from all the angles, which are you know, very encompassing, very engrossing. It's not that kind of movie. But what it does, it does do very well. Now, the other side of the coin is it does feature, as do a lot of the CGI movies, a lot of big stars. Martin Lawrence and Ashton Kutcher are possibly the most too annoying on the planet, after Josh Lucas. Um, But it also has people like Gary Sinise as the uh, hunter, sure. Now, I have to be honest, I didn't recognise his voice in the movie. Um, But he does very well, Um, and Billy Connolly probably provides most of the laughs with his sort of um, furry creature called McSquizzy. But other than that, it is purely a demo disc for the the image on its own. Sound, average, extras, plentiful, but who cares when the movie is as trite as this. From a movie perspective, I'm only going to give it 1 out of 10. But from an image perspective, you're going to find it really hard to find anything to showcase Blu-ray any better than this, so I have to give it 9 out of 10.
0: And on that Blu-ray bombshell, that wraps up our HD reviews for this week. For the biggest and best DVD and HD news and reviews, visit avplay.com. This week's Roundtable Discussion.
1: And it's now time for this week's Roundtable Discussion. And this week we've chosen to talk about soundtracks, whether they be music tracks or surround soundtracks as in effects tracks. So we also asked for forum members to take part and send us in their emails and we'll be reading some of them out during the conversation. So, guys, who wants to kick us off this week with uh, one of their favourite soundtracks on DVD or in the movies?
7: Personally, I, I find that most of my favourite soundtracks um, I associate with my favourite movies. Uh, it comes naturally to adore the, um, the soundtracks of my top five, top ten movies. Um, but picking out just an exemplary choice of lights it's not necessarily in my top ten movies, but um, the recent Miami Vice soundtrack I thought was excellent. One of the best soundtracks I've come across recently.
1: So, Kaz, are you talking about the effects tracks or are you talking about the actual music soundtrack there?
7: No, the actual music soundtrack. I haven't checked it out on HD, but um, but on DVD it, it sounds fantastic. And, and we're talking about uh, tracks from, I think it's, uh, it's Limp Biscuit, Numb. I think they did a remix of uh, Phil Collins' In The Air Tonight. Really odd tracks you wouldn't expect to be really good, but they are. And it's, it's one of the best music soundtracks I've come across recently.
1: Okay, so we'll stick to movie soundtracks, um, as in music soundtracks for the time being. And uh, we'll go to our first email, which is from Neil Byrne. Uh, Neil says, uh, this is Soundwave from the AV Forums, and I saw your... After recommendations for best movie soundtracks, I thought I would share mine's. First up, he says, The Transformers, the movie. He says, no soundtrack collection is complete without this one. Quite simply, some of the finest mullet rock to come out of the 80s. He also goes on to mention Devil's Rejects, uh, Rob Zombie's um, greatest tracks ever chosen. Lost Boys from the 80s, he says, a pinnacle of 80s music greatness, Blues Brothers' Top Gun, if you feel like a bit of homoerotic male posturing, and Forrest Gump, which he says is quite possibly the greatest collection of music ever assembled for a movie. So that's Neil's choice for uh, movie soundtracks. So what do you think, guys? Is he on the right track with some of them, then? Any of those that that stand out for you guys?
4: Well, Top Gun, yeah, in its time, it was a soundtrack that you just had to get hold of. And uh, although looking back on it, it's just a complete and utter embarrassment. I still love Berlin's main track, which is Take My Breath Away, which is still still pretty awesome. But the rest of it, Hanging With The Boys, and all the rest of it, Kenny Loggins and all that weird... Nah. Danger Zone. Yeah, but to be honest, I'm not a big fan of movies that just employ songs as their soundtrack. Yeah, it's okay in its place, but I I much, much rather hear a proper film score created for that movie rather than the director and, and filmmakers who've sort of... well we're going to accompany this certain scene with a track that really exemplifies what I'm trying to say. And it, it seems to me, although, as I say, in its place it's okay, but it seems to me like a bit of a cop-out a lot of the time. Um, I'd, I'd far rather have an actual composer put together a work specifically for that movie, which encapsulates the themes and the um, the motivations and the entire concept of the movie, which I'm a big collector of those.
1: Well, I mean, Neil goes on in his email to say that... Um that his selection is made up of of entirely soundtracks with real songs, because he doesn't go for what he describes as arty instrumental types, the likes of Lord of the Rings and Star Wars. He says, while it might suit the movies perfectly, it's not something he wants to to listen to out of the movie.
4: You, you can create a film which, you know, you invest a lot of time and energy into you create in the movie, and then you're just going, well, let us have got little songs here and there, and we'll just splash them about. They They... Those songs were created for a different purpose. If the songs were written for the the film itself, you know, I, I think that would hold a bit of water. But quite honestly, I think that's that's
2: quite a strange concept. That
1: okay. Anybody else into the uh, the real song type soundtracks? Then
2: yeah, I prefer the real songs um, because otherwise it's just another marketing tool, isn't it? You know, by you've seen the film now by the album, which is what seems to be happening at the moment. And I, and I don't really, I mean, oh, yeah, it, certainly like that, like, like you were saying, Chris. I mean, it's right in its place, but I mean. You know, when, when the, at the end of the credits, we said says oh, "all buy the uh, buy the album from," you think, "Oh God!" Yeah, and of course, what they do now is that you'll get um, a
4: CD will come out with songs from and inspired by, ah, yeah. <laughs> which is the, the, the pure <laughs> marketing tool there. And then, if, you, if you're lucky, someone like me who watches the film soundtrack, the actual film score, you've got to wait a few months down the line and then import it from somewhere because it's very you know, limited availability. But finally, the score does get released. And, you know, I just think it's a, that is a bit of a, a cheap con. That music from and inspired by usually has, like, the main theme on it as well, which I'll always like. So I'll have to go and get that anyway. No, I, I don't get it with the, the songs.
1: I mean, the, the, there are some songs which which do suit films. Um, the, the one that jumps out at me was uh, the track that was used in Ghost, the, the famous pottery scene, oh. um, which Brightest was by... Business. Righteous brothers. Righteous
2: brothers. I mean, that whole new album for him, isn't
1: it? Yeah, but I mean, that, yeah. that, that suited the scene, though, doesn't? Didn't it? So you can forgive um, well, songs that yeah, are chosen
4: for particular scenes. Definitely, in that case, it did because it's a song that it's two lovers together, isn't it? And it's it's a song from from their relationship. Yeah, it, certainly that that works in that particular you know relevant scene, and certainly you know carries on for the movie. But by and large, I mean, Ghost actually had quite a good soundtrack as well <laughs> alongside it.
1: One film which really stands out for me is Almost Famous. And without the songs in that, um, I think it it would probably ruin the feel for for the movie. I mean, if you haven't seen the movie, it's about um, a 15-year-old um, who starts out as a journalist and he goes on the road with a band. It's during the, the early 70s and the, the soundtrack's made up from... Some of the real gods of of music back in those days, such as Bowie and um, Elton John and so on. So without that soundtrack, I, I, I think the film would have suffered. But I can see where Chris coming from with the likes of Top Gun and so on. Um, it's just pop tracks, isn't it? It's, it? It doesn't really add anything to the to the movie. You would much rather have something that was written specifically for the movie, wouldn't you?
2: I would say that for us, actually. I mean, I know the, the the guy they picked out Forrest Gump, was one of the best. But I mean, that is purely an album, isn't it? A film set to an album. Yeah, yeah but yeah, but yeah.
1: doesn't the? I mean, I, I suppose the, 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 the use of music sometimes helps with with the time period if you're trying to set exactly. in a, in a particular scene, time period. Yeah,
4: yeah, that that definitely works. If it's going to be and an, you know set in a certain era, then obviously you know you're going to have to to evoke that spirit. If it's set in the '60s, say yeah, that's I would have no problem with that kind of thing. If it was uh, that kind of cult- culture-style movie where you were trying to evoke that spirit, then, yeah, it, it, I don't think it would work without it, really. We'll, we'll
1: stick with uh, with the soundtracks just for the time being. We'll move on to Phil Bambury, who sent us an email in. Thank you, Phil. Uh, Phil mentions Kill Bill, which immediately uh, comes to mind of uh, Quentin Tarantino having a, a very um, eclectic mix of music in his films, doesn't he? And and adds to the atmosphere as well, doesn't it?
4: Certainly with Kill, Kill Bill and Kill Bill 2, um, Volume 2, the soundtrack is superb. <laughs> Going totally against what I've just said. But it really, really works well with that. But you've got a lot of themes which he's taken from other films. You've got Morricone Mar- is in there a few times and a few other composers who right now I can't think of, typically. But I've got both those soundtracks. They play well against the movie as well. Because... Tarantino does a lot of pop culture referencing throughout his movies anyway, well, we know this. So, with his style of filmmaking, yeah, he's one of the exceptions to the rule I'm trying to lay down. He definitely, you know, the way he, he approaches putting tracks onto films, oh well, that works. That, that works for me, even I would agree with that, especially Kill Bill Volumes 1 and 2, because they are superb albums in their own right absolutely top stuff and they play tremendously with the movie
1: yeah one that always sticks in my mind um, and every time I hear it now I instantly think of the movie and that's Steeler's Wheel <laughs> yeah. uh, stuck in the middle mm-hmm. with you mm-hmm. um, you just think about that scene from now Bizarre on that every time it
4: accompanies a guy getting his ear severed you know? <laughs> and then almost set on fire <laughs>
1: I just want to move quickly back to uh, uh, Neil uh, Burns, um email where he mentioned Devil's Rejects, and I know um, our own Devil's Reject, um, Seth, um, well into this soundtrack, aren't you? So uh, you got anything to add to that?
3: Uh, I actually agree with him. It is um, a- an absolutely cracking soundtrack. Uh, Rob Zombie has only done um, sort of two movies, really, the other one being The House of a Thousand Corpses, um, and he tends to um, take some... Of his own tunes, or uh, tunes that sort of White Zombie, would, uh, the band that he was in before he be, sort of became a solo artist, were famous for. But he also integrates um, some very, very strange choices um, in House of a Thousand Corpses. Um, I think he had um, Brick House Lionel Richie cover version of that uh, sort of soul classic. It, it's just a very strange. Um, meshing of styles and in in the devil's rejects he actually pulls it off even more successfully um i don't think on that movie he actually has any of his own songs there may be one or two um but otherwise it's it's purely song based, and it's a real eclectic um collection
1: so let's leave the song soundtracks for a moment and let's move on to those scores which are uh, written for particular films and uh, those people that write them such as Hans Zimmer, um, we also have Danny Elfman, uh, John Williams, Th- I mean the list can go on so quickly Phil Banbury and his email, he's picked out The Mission which was uh, a, a Morico- uh, Morricone yeah. um, soundtrack and Gladiator which was a Hans Zimmer, Hans Zimmer. Yeah. and just know Chris is going to come in with this one.
4: Just to talk about well Morricone and Hans Zimmer, yeah, you've got two ends of the spectrum there because Morricone has been going for a long, long time, and the this, this soundtracks are very, very emotional, very elegant, very sweeping, very lush stuff, and um, you know very, very exciting as well. I mean, this is a guy who not only did the the, you know, the Dollars trilogy for Sergio Leone, which are phenomenal and classic soundtracks in their own right, um, but he also managed to to do the Thing for John Carpenter. And, of course, the weird thing about that is that John Carpenter picked him because of all of the films that the Carpenter loved, which Morricone had scored. Um, and what, what does Morricone go and do but try to emulate John Carpenter's Casio keyboard doodlings with a very simplistic, very minimal, but quite resoundingly powerful um, score for The Thing? Hans Zimmer, of course. Uh, a lot of people don't like Hans Zimmer at all, and I can understand why, because... This is a guy who, with, together with his group Media Ventures, which has spawned a lot of very, very similar composers to, um, to Hans Zimmer and stuff, because they're all his protégés, basically. It's Electronica. He will use orchestras, but he will then sample the sounds to create his own st- highly stylized version of what the orchestra would sound like. It doesn't work in a lot of cases. A lot of soundtracks of his are pretty, pretty damn poor, to be honest. But I am actually a fan of his stuff, um, particularly the likes of... Uh, Batman Begins, which again it was a seventy thirty mix with him there. There was James Newton Howard, I think it was as well, who did some some of the score, the more sort of quieter moments, reflective moments, but Zimmer stormed on in there with the main, momentous, driving, pulsating rhythms and the action parts of the score, and it was a great, great double act, I thought. A tremendous score. Gladiator, yeah. This, this is this is a major case in point for Zimmer. Zimmer does create. Weld um, world music now that you, you always see well you know world music oh god no um, it's next to the folk stuff usually you think, oh, I'm not touching that but for when he's creating for a movie uh Zimmer especially will look into the the ethnic instruments that would have been used in that particular sphere of the world or time and place another one that Zimmer did exceptionally well was Black Hawk Down again for Ridley Scott uh, sadly the soundtrack at the cd itself doesn't feature some of the best Cues from that film, but uh, again, he manages to create. Uh, he evokes the time, the place, and the spirit, and the savagery of that, you know, conflict quite amazingly.
1: I, I think the one that w- which really gets me every time, and I've got the three disc um, Korean release, which was a super bit release, which came with the soundtrack CD. And the one that always gets me is the the opening track um, with the Arabic chanting. Yeah, um, a fantastically uh, layered track, isn't it?
4: Oh, it's wonderful stuff, yeah. There's a, there's a lot of different um, elements to, to Black Hawk Down which are really, really powerful and moving.
1: So we'll move on to another email, and this time it comes from Simon Enzor. And Simon says, Love the movie's podcast. It's one of my favourites out there. That's great. Good to know. I'd love to hear your thoughts on one of the best films ever made, which was Midnight Run. Well, unfortunately, I've gone through all the reviews, and although we can remember it... Um, there's not a lot, not a lot that we can really add to that because it was such a long time ago when we we all uh, watched that film. But he does say it has a fabulous Danny Elfman soundtrack, and um, I think you, you hit the nail on the head there, Simon, with that Danny Elfman great soundtracks. So guys, Danny Elfman, who, which soundtracks do you really go for from the from him?
3: The Batman ones,
4: Batman, yeah, Batman and Batman Returns, absolutely incredible soundtracks, yeah. Al Elfman um, did a fabulous score for Clive Barker's *Nightbreed*, which is a film which is absolutely totally naff. But um, it's not. Well, if, if the if the full version, oh, it's got merit, yeah, but it's it's you know not a lot. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's got Cronenberg acting. Come on, well, yeah. yeah. Buttonhead wasn't he called or something? Buttonhead, Buttonface. I haven't seen it for quite some time, but no, he was he was the guy trying to yeah. catch him, wasn't he? He was the he was the, the killer. He, he wore mm-hmm. like a, a sackcloth sort of mask, didn't he? With mm-hmm. uh, with buttons for eyes. Yeah, it's was it was basically Cabal. So yeah, anyway. which was a bit of a, a bit of a laugh. I like Clive Barker stuff. What well, I loved his earlier stuff, mm-hmm. but um, I don't think the um, Cabal soundtracks was particularly Christ. good. Soundtrack's. Sorry. <laughs> yes, of course. Let's get back on track. Ah, back on track. Twelve. Um, yeah. Where were we? <laughs> <laughs> Danny Elfman. Danny Elfman. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Nightbreed was a was a, a fabulous score, that certainly bolstered a film that was a, a bit lacking, I thought. But Elfman has a, a has a great tendency to do a lot of sort of sentimental and, and whimsy, and he can really pluck the heartstrings. You can listen to Edward Scissorhands' the score for that. My God, it's, well it, it gets me every single time. And he can he can do bombast, he can do heroic themes, Spider-Man, Batman, we've already mentioned. Um, he even did the Hulk, didn't he? Did he did the score for the Hulk? And I, and that was a weird one, that because he put a lot of ethnic sort of tribal drums and percuss, percussion into that, which you wouldn't have thought would have, would have flown, you know, particularly well with the Hulk, but a good score.
1: But Elfman as well, um, Seth, he's uh, always work seems to work with Tim Burton as well. So some some of those soundtracks are absolutely uh, amazing, aren't they?
3: There are a lot of Burton collaborations, I mean, obviously we said the two Batman ones, you've also got Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, which he worked on, and the one that sticks in my mind, funnily enough, is Corpse Bride, um, which isn't quite traditional um, Elfman. I'm trying to uh, the remains of the day, the the song that they sing when they first go into the underworld is sort of dark and ominous in the lyrics but kind of upbeat tempo. It's a, a kind of a clash of styles. But his work is generally, you know, easily recognizable. I mean you know, I mean at the end of the day he is the guy that did the Simpsons opening song. So
1: Yeah, thumbs up to him. So just to wrap up on the, the soundtrack side of things and the score side of things, we seem to be missing the big hitters here, such as Lord of the Rings Star Wars trilogy and um, Star Trek Jerry Goldsmith, so any of those soundtracks that you guys want to talk about
7: all of them
4: <laughs> yeah well they're all phenomenal soundtracks Jerry Goldsmith is, is probably my my favorite composer to be honest, sadly no longer with us, but his track record is you know beyond beyond question um, oh, the omen. The only Oscar he ever got. The Omen, absolutely fantastic score. You want a, you want a, a score that evokes the devil, that frightens you, that moves you. <laughs> it's just one, one of the best. I could go on about Goldsmith, but I'm, I won't. Um, John Williams, of course, probably more famous for actually creating main themes, fanfares, and you know, Star Wars, the Lost Ark. Jaws, a very minimalist score for Jaws, but you know, you imagine a film without it. Spielberg laughed when he first heard the, um, the, you know, the first rendition of the score. He thought, you know, you've got to be joking. But can you imagine a film without it? Seriously, it just wouldn't work, would it? Uh, it? Even the later collaborations with Spielberg and John Williams, War of the Worlds, a film I wasn't particularly enamoured with, uh, but the, the score is is phenomenal, fantastic stuff there. Close Encounters again, brilliant.
3: I find them all rather similar, I have to be honest. You can definitely tell this stuff, can't you? Yeah, but they're too similar. You know, I mean, if you listen to... Um, uh, he did Superman, didn't he, as well? Oh, but uh, come on, Superman. The main theme of Superman has got to be one of the greatest yeah. <laughs> pieces Which everyone thinks, but, of music. Uh, but uh, but if you, think, you know, put that and Raiders and you know all the others, they just really sound kind well, of Well, that's, that's the s- point. Too He's similar.
4: more famous for fanfares than he is for the overall... Scoring. Mm. Well, uh, th- there's, there's one
1: that I, w- I always do, and it's along the same lines as Seth. Um, hum the theme to Superman, then hum the theme to Star Wars, and then hum the theme to Raiders of the Lost Ark. And I bet you get mixed up because the sound's so similar.
3: Are we going to do this? Go on then. Uh, well, Superman was the. Um Oh, um, Come on, trying to I'm something. trying to remember <laughs> Superman. <laughs> 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 yep. Yeah. Um, Raiders of the Lost Ark was. <laughs> and Star Wars was shit. <laughs> <laughs>
4: I don't know, <laughs> Seth, I agree with you. I, I'm not a fan of the Star Wars main theme. I think it's appalling.
1: All right. So <laughs> we, we, need to, we need to wrap this up. I mean, we could go on for, for hours and hours and hours talking about, and uh, about the movie side of things and the scoring side of things, because I want to move on to the sound mixes and effects mixes, and we're going to move on to that in a, in a minute. But if you guys were to pick um, a couple of soundtracks or one soundtrack which you listen to on a regular basis... Um, from from your favorite films, what would you pick, Chris?
4: Well, my possibly my favorite soundtracks, the these two tracks these two scores would certainly be in there. One would have to be *The Good, the Bad and the Ugly* Ennio Morricone, such a bizarre mix of of, of, of cues in there. All of them exciting, all of them moving, tremendous, memorable, haunting stuff. And just to be even a little a bit weirder, Joseph Leduca's score for *Brothers of the Wolf*. Uh, which is a phenomenal score for an equally
3: phenomenal movie. That's two for me at the moment. Seth? I I have to go for the song one. Blues Brothers is the obvious one. I I can listen to that quite uh, regularly. And House of a Thousand uh, Corpses is another one. Um, But if it was the closest I can get to an orchestral sort of score, it's going to be anything by John Carpenter. Uh, I've got a soft spot for the
2: uh, theme tune, To Escape from New York, so...
1: Okay,
3: Simon.
2: Funnily enough, I don't actually listen to many scores, um, but I the uh, one CD set that I did buy was uh, Lord of the Rings trilogy. Um, other scores that I've I've listened to, I quite like the score to Suspiria actually. That's oh, go- yeah. Goblin stuff. Yeah, Good God, yeah. Wild, I, and, I, and I and I have listened to that quite a lot. Um, so I would I would pick those two.
1: Well, I think if I was to pick two i mean john williams would have to be in there um and i would pick empire strikes back just because it's something i've grown up with i know all the the musical cues and it's something i can listen to on a regular basis and um for a second score i'd probably pick dances with wolves john barry just it's such a fabulous melodic soundtrack um which i can listen to over and over and over so that'd be my two kaz what's your favorite
7: well as i already mentioned earlier um the original soundtrack to Miami Vice is one of my favourites, and uh, I've got to correct myself because I, I did say uh, uh, I did say that one of my favourite tracks from it was a um, Limp Biscuit track. It's not it's Linkin Park Numb, but uh, that's one of my favourite soundtracks of recent times. Uh, looking back a little bit further, um, I've also got Man on Fire. I'm going largely by the soundtracks I bought on CD, and that's uh, Harry Greggenson Williams. But basically, they still a lot of nine-inch nails for that movie, and it works perfectly. So, those would have to be two of my favourite soundtracks.
1: Okay, so moving on from the soundtracks and scores, we'll move on to the sound mixes, um, which is your special effects, your surround sound, and, and one of the films which kicked surround sound off in the cinema was um, the 1977 release of uh, Star Wars. It was released with a Dolby Stereo soundtrack, which was a, a Dolby surround track. And uh, it's taken off from there on in. And uh, in 1992, the first Dolby Digital soundtrack to hit cinemas was uh, Batman Returns. So, guys, surround sound. What was the first surround soundtrack that you heard and that really stood out for you when you went to see the films in the cinema? And I'm going to start with Seth on this one.
3: The first uh, surround track, I suppose, from the cinema would have been Star Wars because I remember my father dragging us to the cinema to see it. But I was only about seven at the time, so uh, I can't remember it uh as an experience, I remember the movie, but I don't remember it as an experience too well. Um, I suppose the, the the big one that um, springs to mind um, would be Jurassic Park. I watched that um, in e- Lakeside in Essex, three or four rows from the front, because that's the only bloody seats we could get, and uh, the, the, the T-Rex roaring... Um, at the, in the first scene that it was introduced in, was just so phenomenally loud with the bass going. It was just you know, uh, an interesting experience.
1: Well, it's funny that you mentioned Jurassic Park because that was the first film to um, hit cinemas with the new DTS sound mix. Um, it was the first time that DTS had actually hit the cinemas and obviously it was Spielberg that helped develop that. And I've got to say that was my first memory, uh, real sort of knockout memory of... Um, surround sound done properly. I mean, you got to, got to remember that a lot of these cinemas would be mono and so on um, in the 70s and during the 80s. It was only really at the turn of the 90s that, that cinema switched over to digital and, and switched over to, to real surround sound stereo and and so on. So that that one, I'll agree with you, Seth, really sort of blew my socks off. I've seen it three or four times at, at the cinema, and the sound was one of the major issues um, for for seeing it because it was the first time you really got that... Um, enveloping sound and thundering bass levels uh, let 's move on to someone else simon
2: it 's funny you, you you're talking about uh, Star Wars s et and not remember because i do um, I have vivid memories of, of going to see it in uh, in Leicester Square the, in, within the first two weeks, and I remember it being huge and loud and just enveloping I, I do remember it being really quite powerful to me. Um, and I subsequently went to see the film, you know, five or six times as we all did um, at that age. Um, and it has stuck with me. Um, I can still remember it as, 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 as clear as, I, as, um, as day. What about Kaz? Kaz, what was your, uh, your first
1: cinema experience of Surround Sound?
7: Well, I think one of the uh, ones I best remember is, um, and I know it's a little bit later on, but it's T2. I, d- I didn't really pay attention to cinema and the movies as much when I was a kid. And uh, but when I sort of hit my teenage years and I could get into older and older films I noticed it a lot more and that, that was a big soundtrack like lots of huge effects
1: Okay, we'll move on to In the Home because that's really where Surround Sound has come into its own um, when you go to the cinema it all depends on, on how that cinema is equipped to play back films but if it's in your own home you know um, what it should sound like, and what equipment you have. And I've got an interesting little email here. It came from Figment, uh, who's a member of the forums. He says, Hi, Phil and guys. As soon as I read the post about recalling the first soundtracks to hear in Surround, it immediately reminded me of, uh, not the first, but a very early time that when I first heard uh, Surround sound on my first Surround kit. The track in question was, in fact, an episode of a TV series called Soldier, Soldier, And to cut a long story short, whilst I was sat happily engrossed, I heard a distinct shouting over by our front window and my ears pricked up thinking that something uh, was going on. It continued and I thought, well, something must be going on outside the house, so I've gone over and had a better look out the window and saw nothing. So at that point, I opened the door and went out into the street and nothing to be seen. So thinking that I was maybe losing my marbles, I uh, went and sat back down in the living room and then it started again and then it dropped, realised what was going on. The mystery voices were, of course, the sound of Scordies on an assault course, and they were coming out of the surround speakers. I think this was purely down to the scene and was realistic enough to have me going out my front door. <laughs> so there you wow. go, surround sound for the well, first anything, time. I anything anything leaving with Robson Green
3: would make me go out the front door. <laughs>
1: yeah but and it, carry on going but it is a good point and and now and again sometimes it happens to me i think oh what the hangs that and then realize it's the soundtrack it's something which it has happened to all of us in our time mm-hmm. but figment goes on to say as well that um in the movies it had to be jurassic park and he says thanks for the podcast guys i love them well thanks very much for the email figment so surround sound in the home guys um which soundtracks have done it for you then We'll start with we'll start with Simon this time.
2: First one that I can remember being um, really vivid to me um, was uh, speed. Actually, um, when the, when the house exploded right at the very beginning, and you heard all the bits of um, debris falling behind you. Um, well, that's not a particularly good film, but that's, um, no, I do remember that quite distinctly. As oh blimey, um, and voices of course is the other one when you you hear something in the back back behind you, and you are looking around going who's talking? I'm trying to watch the telly. But if we we're talking about um, favourite ones of mine, I think I'd have to go with Descent, actually, as um, one of the best all-engrossing uh, DTS tracks that I've ever heard. Um, it sounded so real in the caves, it was quite, quite phenomenal. Uh, I, I'm with Figment. I remember
3: watching uh, a surround soundtrack and, and looking behind me for ages, looking for the facehugger because it was aliens, or it was going behind speakers. DVD version of Underworld on Japanese DTS ES. Absolutely wonderful, aggressive um, soundtrack. I did love that a lot. I don't know. It was just one of those ones that uh, I sat and watched, and every single gunshot, the NFE just kicks. I mean, it's just a really aggressive soundtrack, um, more so than the sort of a Dolby, the standard Dolby Digital mix. Dragonheart.
7: heart
3: hmm the, the scene where the dragon dra- flying, Draco flying flies around. Again, that's a superb one that worked really well in the cinema and even more so um, in the home environment, especially if you've got the DTS edition of of that. I thought that was really well done because obviously Sean Connery as a dragon uh, with a Scottish accent is flying around because all dragons have Scottish accents. Uh oh, and he's don't talking behind you. One of the yeah. Scottish
1: ones. So. Wait, well, we'll move on to another email before I move on to the rest of the guys. And uh, it's from Dave Tatum. And Dave says, uh, well, it's probably not the first track I heard in Surround Sound, but it was one that just blew me away. It was uh, behind enemy lines, especially scene six, which was the SAM attack, where the plane is first spotting and tries to uh, run the surface to air missile. And um, he also says, don't forget to listen to scene 16 through the minefield where Owen Wilson races through the minefield, setting off all the tripwires. So thanks for your email, Dave. Um, Yeah, we've got to say that that was quite an aggressive soundtrack as well, behind Enemy Lines. Anybody else catch it? Yeah, I've seen it.
7: Yeah, I remember the soundtracks behind Enemy Lines. I can can picture those scenes, and um, they were made all the more dramatic because of the explosive effects and because of the airing they were given on your soundtrack. Really, in-your-face explosions It worked very well.
1: I've, I've got to say, the the first time my jaw hit the ground at home was um, was in fact a DTS soundtrack. It was Jurassic Park on um, Laserdisc. I was absolutely blown away by that. And I've got to say, I've seen so many soundtracks come and go through my home cinema system that um, you tend to forget um, some of the good ones that are in there. And one that I watched recently, which did blow me away, literally, and also nearly blew up my centre speaker because it tripped it, um, was MI3. Um, watching that um, on core from HD DVD, uh, very very impressive sound mix. Um, so, is it just the overblown bombastic sound mixes that we we always go for, or other other subtle tracks out there which should get our attention as well?
4: Good God, yeah! Um, Master and Commander, the DCS track on that. Not only is it has it got the bombast as well but it's got such a fantastic delivery of the score, but it it puts you on that ship. There's there's creaking, there's water sloshing all the way around you. In fact, that's possibly my favorite DTS track that I've heard, uh, because it's so realistic, so natural sounding, encompasses all the speakers, and really does, the the sweeps and the the panning from speaker to speaker are totally seamless. It's really, really natural and realistic sounding, but it's got, you know, some bombastic cannon fire as well.
1: So what about sound mixers? Do do you guys take any notice about the guys who actually put these sound mixes together? I mean, off off the top of my head, I can I think I can only name sort of two um, at this moment in time. It would be Ben Burt, who did uh, all the Star Wars work and watch for Skywalker Sound. Gary Rydstrom, who did um, the Toy Story movies and um, some of Spielberg's best um, sound mixes, such as War of the Worlds. So... Do you guys take any notice in that side of things?
4: I suppose I should do, really, but I, I, unless you see them in a the making-of documentary, no. I don't think I've ever even looked, and you know that is that's quite a shocking omission, really, considering I
3: spend a lot of time actually listening out for these things. I have to be honest; it's one of it's one of those ones that, unlike the sort of the composers of the soundtrack, um, the composers tend to have a very um, not unique sounding, but it's very specific to them. Um, so you can spot, as we've said, a John Williams soundtrack over, say, a Danny Elfman soundtrack, and vice versa. With um, that kind of thing, I don't think um, anyone would—you you wouldn't turn around and go, "Oh, that's so and so who did the Star Wars ones," because it probably doesn't um, have that kind of uh, sort of fingerprint that they
4: stamp all over it, you know? Yeah, there's no trademark. I mean, it should—if it's done properly—it just puts you into the film, um, and there wouldn't be a unique hallmark on that one because it's it's just doing its job isn't it but i mean yeah i think we've stumbled on something there that these guys are quite unsung heroes aren't they uh, you know they're there enhancing our movie enjoying experience you know no end with some of these mixes um, we're not giving them their proper due <laughs>
1: well mm-hmm. let's thank god that the oscars are there to to uh, give these guys their due um because i think it, it is something that everybody sort of forgets about that the, there is a team of people who have to put these soundtracks together. And overall, I think they, in the majority of cases for most films, they do a fantastic job. So I think we all agree on that, don't we?
2: We do. We do. Yeah.
1: Okay, then, well, I think that sort of wraps up our roundtable for this week next week we're going to be talking about TV adaptations that have made it to the big screen and vice versa so if you have any um, suggestions or you want to take part in our conversation or give us your thoughts then email phil at avforums.com and uh, we'll make sure that your points are put across in the next round table my thanks to Simon Crust, Kaz Harlow, Chris Macanini, and Seth Gecko for this week's round table and we will be a little bit later next week as we're all heading. Heading off to Bristol on Thursday of this week. So we won't be around until a week after next. But send those emails in and uh, we'll discuss TV adaptations next week.
0: Brought to you by AV Forums and AVPlay.com.
7: Oh my God, is there nothing you people
0: can't do? This is the AV Podcast.
1: And that's all we have time for for this week's Movies Podcast. Don't forget to download the home cinema and games editions. And remember that you need to reset your RSS feeds to receive those podcasts. This is Phil Hinton. Saying
0: thanks for listening. I will see you again next week. The AV Podcast was presented by Jason Bradbury and Phil Hinton. Original music by Andrew Bassett and Richard Cosgrove. The AV Play Review team were Chris Macanini, Cas Harlow, Simon Crust, and Seth Gecko. The AV Podcast was mixed and produced by Phil Hinton, and the senior producer was Stuart Wright. All content, including sound clips and music, is copyright material and featured for promotional use only. The AV Podcast is copyright. M2M Limited.